Hello. Well, I, I also would like to thank uh, the organizers of this event. It's a very, a very, very interesting and um, important one to be attending, and I'm, I'm rather honored, actually. Um, can you hear me at the back? What am I doing? Oh, I'm speaking to both. Oh, I'm speaking to this one. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the Night Cleaners campaign, which was organized by May Hobbs, a night cleaner herself in the 1970s, early 70s, and she, when she enlisted the help of the Women's Liberation Movement. So this is kind of a little bit of descriptive memoir, really. In 1971 to 72 in Pimlico, London, every week for over a year, perhaps for two years, once a week, on a Thursday evening, I went to the Shell Mex building on the south bank opposite Waterloo Station, close to the roundabout, and leafleted night cleaners as they came in for their night shift just before 10. The entrance to the tube was next door to Shell. Some cleaners came up the steps, others were on foot or got off the bus which stopped in front of the building, others were dropped off by their husband in the car. Sheila Robottom and Liz Waugh, who were doing the same kind of thing in, in the City of London, said that we would accost weary-looking women clutching their belongings in carrier bags. There were always two of us, sometimes more. I was a member of the Pimlico Women's Liberation Group. Several groups in the Women's Liberation Workshop in London were involved in the campaign. Some cleaners walked straight past us, others stopped to talk, some politely took leaflets and went into the building. We grew to know most of them by sight over the months, and some of them very well. Sometimes May Hobbs came with us to leaflet, but not always, she was going all over the place. The Cleaners Action Group was started by May Hobbs, a former cleaner herself, who had approached the women's liberation movement via international socialists, a Trotskyist group, in uh, 1971, because she had for many years been trying to organize the cleaners into a union branch. She'd been involved, as her memoir, published in 1973, shows, in tenancy struggles, in work struggles, and in all sorts of struggles around just living conditions and work and life um, in the 19, uh, early 60s, for 10 years. She had three, four children. May had been blacklisted by employers. She had been ignored or fobbed off by the trades unions, who were perhaps fed up with her. She was militant, persistent. She urged strikes when there was a grievance, and she pointed out the failings of the union, very often to the, the officials themselves. Uh, there are many stories about her relationship, troubled relationship with trades unions in her memoir. May's aim was, a, was to form uh, a, a branch of the night cleaners in the Transport and General Workers Union, a general union, obviously, headed by Jack, Her Jack Jones, who was a civil, Spanish Civil War veteran um, who advocated the, the, the uh, social contract and, and organized it in the mid-1970s, and was, after his retirement, he was organizing old-age pensioners. He was an internationalist. Um, he was a, a socialist. He was a wonderful man, actually, a wonderful man. They just don't make people like that anymore. 
And organizing, making uh, a, a, a branch in the TNG made complete sense. Shell employed perhaps 40 to 45 cleaners. If a building as large as Shell joined up with, with each of its uh, members paying regular dues, dues each week, then union dues, then it was a branch was viable. We recruited about 30 members from the Shell building by Christmas 71. May knew most of the employers, supervisors, and most of the women. When she came, she told us who to approach, how to approach them, and how to hand the, out the leaflets. May herself could put the case quickly and precisely to the women. She was vivid, articulate, a natural orator. And her, uh, I reread bits of her memoir yesterday, and she, you, I can, hear, I haven't seen May for 35 years. I could hear her, you know, her voice. It must have been taken down verbatim. The cadences of her voice, the way she spoke, the direct way she spoke, just, just, I could, you know, brought her to life. She was quick to laugh and to anger. Um, and she was a very attractive woman, charismatic, but she looked like the other night cleaners, tired and shabby and older than her years. I had also looked tired and shabby because I was also a single mother and, um, uh, you know, we were the women's liberation movement, so, you know, dressed accordingly. Um, I quickly learned from May how to grab the women's attention, what to say and how to say it. The main point was to listen to their point of view about the union, plan for a meeting, if possible, during working time. Um, in fact, the meetings we did organize were held before work, working hours in a pub close by, draw up a list of demands and spokeswomen and so on. <coughs> Very soon, one or two of the women cleaners emerged as articulate and interested organizers. Many of them, initially, had never heard of a trades union or were very uncertain about what it could do. Others were very cynical about uni the possibilities of union organization or resigned. Most of us feminists were, in the early 70s, very enthusiastic. I'll say more about that in a minute. None of the women night cleaners wanted to lead or to supervise, and there's a very long tradition of women's resistance on the shop floor to hierarchies and being put in positions of um, supervision. But I could say more about that, but I won't. But these women who came forward were the ones who understood the conditions of industry, the needs of the women workers themselves, and through negotiating with union officers, um, as well as the employers, quickly gained confidence, and they were the what would you know the natural shop stewards, as it were. Our leaflets, handwritten, duplicated, um, on a hand machine, uh, asked questions like, "Why do night cleaners get lower pay than day cleaners? Do you get cover money? Um, why is there understaffing? Um, why do you not get Sunday bonuses?" Um, do, why are you sacked without notice? We asked direct questions to the cleaners, uh, and we put we leafleted those with the TNG um, membership forms. They looked completely different. The cleaners' demands, when they were formulated, um, were for a minimum hourly rate for overtime and cover pay, which was very important. When someone was off, you did their work, and you usually didn't get cover for it. 
um, shorter hours, regular breaks for meals, proper equipment, ventilation in the rooms, and adequate supervision. Supervision was a contentious issue. Some supervisors were fair and good to the girls, as they called themselves. Um, and this could make all the difference to working conditions. They could organize cover, time for childcare or domestic issues, putting the case to the employers, and so on. Other supervisors were, host were hostile, had favorites, or were in the pockets of the employers. I believe the cleaning firm who had the contract on the Shell Mex building then was, was OCS. It was a small um, industry. The, the, the organization of the private sector was small firms, and cleaning was contracted out to these small firms. Um, it was very well organized, it was very lucrative, and it you know, succeeded by undercutting, undercutting, undercutting. No sooner had a, um, a, a group of cleaners negotiated a higher pay or higher hourly rate than when the contract came to, the, to an end, they would be sacked and a new group of, sounds familiar, um, a new group of, of, of workers would come in. The majority of night cleaners were uh, youngish or middle-aged white working-class women, a good proportion of Caribbean, and a handful of men who were mostly immigrant. Similar uh, as today, but that we can talk about that later. Many worked only intermittently, and they hid their employment, or others hid their employment because they were living on SS. Most, most were mothers of families, and they were hardworking and exhausted. And of course, they worked intermittently because of the problems of juggle, juggling domestic work with um, paid work. We spoke to the cleaners in huddles as they went into work. We talked before or after um, uh, to, to each other and to May. Chris and May Hobbs and their, their children, three children, were regular. Um, we just got to know them very, very well. And I stress this, and when they were in and out of my house throughout the campaigns, we were on demonstrations together. You know, my, children, my daughter knew, knew their, their children very well, and, um, and so on. I was mortified when I went to reread um, May Hobbs's book, and I'm telling you this as a historian, to see that however close we were for four or five years in the early mid-70s, we get barely a mention in May's memoir. She says something like, you know, I approached women's lib, um, and they helped us. And she, that's it. However, my memory is of a close friendship with May and Chris and their children, and a lot of fun and a lot of hard work, and I learned a lot from it. We made friends um, with some of the cleaners, and I want to mention one um, who isn't on the film clip that I'm going to show you at the end, actually. Uh, she was called Jean Mormont. She was one of 18 children herself, brought up in Battersea, and she had seven children. Beautiful face with shadowed, kind eyes. She spoke quietly and seldom, but with intense understanding and experience, knowledge um, of how to manage poverty. Um, I interviewed her myself later on for some research I was doing into, into um, women's employment and conditions of lives in the interwar years in London. Her husband had been, was a postman, and he babysat for the children when Jean went out to work. 
and he had long conversations with me about the limits and difficulties of trades union organisations. He applauded what we were trying to do, but he did not hold out much hope of success. Because of the conditions of the women's work and lives, because of the union officials' understandable reluctance to stand around on street corners leafleting or getting up at 1am to address the cleaners during their break, if they did get a break. The branch in the Transport and General Workers' Union did not materialise. In the campaign film that was made of the night cleaners, actually it wasn't a campaign film, it was an avant-garde film made by the Berwick Street Film Collective, led by Mark Carlin and the artist and um, feminist Mary Kelly. Um, but the, the, in the film, uh, there, are, uh, there is a wonderful scene with the local union official, whom we got to know very well, called Mr. Woodhouse, who would be confronted by a meeting of women night cleaners, all putting their demands, very articulate about their conditions of work, and he'd say thing, you're not going to get it. No point. There's no point in asking for cover. You won't get it. No, you won't get, you won't get supervision. No, you won't get... I mean, it was like a nightmare. You're saying, but please, could we just try to get the, the branch? And so it's, it would be funny if it wasn't um, very sad. Many trade union um, officers advised and helped us. I should mention particularly Ken Gill, who was a member of the Communist Party and um, the head of DARTA. And he was the husband, of course, of a feminist, Teskill, in um, uh, the Women's Liberation Workshop in London. She was a lawyer. And he came round and uh, offered practical advice and filled us in about the difficulties. And the main argument that he put to us about why uh, it was so difficult to organize any kind of domestic cleaning work, let alone night cleaners, was because they didn't have a skill. There was no skill involved in uh, cleaning work. Anyone could do it. So there was a huge reserve army of labor that, you could, or that employers could always pull in if somebody dropped out. Unless you can establish a skill, he argued, you couldn't unionize or organize into a trades union because you've got to establish a skill and then keep others out on the basis of that skill. I stress that because I'm not sure how familiar that it, all of you um, are with that argument now, but it was a very powerful one, and we were told it over and over again. You've got to establish a skill if you want to organize. Um, women also, the other argument was put to us, women make terrible trades unionists. They're paid so low they can't afford regular dues. They've got childcare responsibilities, so they're constantly off work for no reason. They let their employers down. Um, uh, they don't like, um, uh, you know, they don't put their paid work before, etc. Women make poor trades unionists. So, no skill, 
overcrowded labour market, low pay, and women are poor, make poor trades unionists. Arguments that if you're a historian of women's work like I am, you've been listening to since the 1830s in the parliamentary blue books, in the reports of the TUC from the 1880s, and right through the formation of the Independent Women's Union, the National Federation of Women Workers, um, in the early 20, first 20 years of the 20th century. Same arguments. Um, eventually, the um, May Hobbs grew exasperated with the Transport and General Workers Union, and they were they with her. She grew. She took to phoning Jack Jones at home, and arguing with his wife, and that really put paid to that. And she turned to the civil service union, who came forward and organised, um, <coughs> tried to organise buildings in the public sector, where they had much more success for a short time. And two Ministry of Defence buildings in the summer of 1972 came on, went on strike. The women were awarded a £2.50 uh, wage rise, bringing their wages up to £21 um, a week. Uh, but this, these gains were lost when the contract wasn't renewed at the end of that year. The campaign in London to organise the women, uh, the women night cleaners fizzled out by the end of 19, uh, 1973. And at the end of 1975, the night cleaners film, which I'm going to show you an extract from at the end, came out. How am I doing for time? Shut up. A couple of minutes. OK, well, I was going to say, uh, why did... Why did um, May asked us to organize, help organize, obviously, because women's liberation activists were keen. We had time. Uh, some of us did. Some of us had the time. Um, my partner then used to look after uh, my daughter. And um, obviously, we had the resources and access to um, influential people and the confidence to speak to trades union officers. So that's why she asked us. Why did we do it? Literally, the campaign began when, um, you know, the phone started ringing. May rang Sheila, Sheila, Sheila Robottom rang me, she rang Liz War, and so on. We called a meeting, and that's how the campaign began, and there isn't time to say more about it. But I do want to make one point, which is actually the argument that Sheila Robottom, or uh, 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 there's a lovely piece by Sheila Robottom on the website. Um, about the night cleaners film, mostly. But she talks about three, she describes three assumptions about the political activism of the women's liberation movement in the early 1970s. And I'll just go through them very quickly. And the first was that um, every issue that women's liberation got involved with was linked to tra social transformation. And it's impossible to reproduce that feeling now. It came from the utopianism of 1968 and the events in France and in South America and Tokyo and Paris and all over Europe and so on. So that's the first, and there's a lot more I could say about that, but that's the first issue. The second was that the women's liberation movement itself fed and sprang from the utopianism of the 1960s. And the third was that politics and life was about um, art as well as work and action. 
and that connection between politics, life, and art was integral to the sense of complete transformation of every aspect of lives that would, would be transformed. And maybe until the mid-late 1970s, that was the kind of utopian feeling. What we were also trying to do as feminists was to make the connection between, um, to change the class analysis, which was dominant on the left, both the labor movement and the new, new left, which, know, which of course the women's liberation movement was very powerfully connected to in the early 70s. And we believed that if we could just get an understanding and foreground the kinds of work that women did and make the connections between domestic labor and uh, waged work, then class analysis would be transformed, our understanding of um, work of capitalism would be transformed. Um, as, I've got, as I haven't got time to say any more, I just want to say that um, the campaign was part of a much wider struggle, which is why I talked about it, um, for work and women in the 1970s, from the Ford machinists who came on strike in 1968 through to Grunick's um, later in the decade. And the Working Women's Charter itself was drawn up in 74, but it culminated this decade in the TUC supporting abortion on demand at the end of the decade. A lot of work was done in that years with the trades union. I mean, you just didn't organize as um, the women's liberation movement. It, you always had one eye on the trades union movement and um, the new left. And at the demonstration for abortion um, at the end of the decade, the, it's interesting to point out the difference in the demands. The TUC demand was make it legal, make it safe, abortion on demand. The feminist slogan was women's right to choose. 